thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. You're listening to Wellness Women Radio with women's health experts, Dr. Ashley Bond, the pregnancy and birthing guru, and the queen of hormone imbalances, the period whisperer herself, Dr. Andrea Huddleston. They're raising the bar for women's health by bringing you the most up-to-date health and wellness information to live your best life. Now, onto the show. This episode of Wellness Women Radio is very proudly brought to you by Dinner Twist. Dr. Ashley and I want to let you in on a little secret of how we maintain our healthy whole foods lifestyle with very little time. And one of those ways is actually with Dinner Twist. So they plan, they shop, they deliver everything to our door to take all of the guesswork out of having really healthy meals for dinner each night. Um, I love Dinner Twist because they are a locally family-owned business here in Perth in Western Australia, and all of their produce is locally sourced and seasonal. So they are really invested in all of their suppliers as well, which is absolutely amazing. Everything is so fresh. Uh, Ashley and I both get the Wholesome Box, which is naturally gluten and dairy-free as well, and is very consistent with a paleo-type lifestyle as well. Uh, so it's, you know, completely consistent with, you know, the way that we want to eat and want to feed our loved ones too. This is also how I trick Dean into thinking that I can actually cook. So seriously, if I can do it, everybody can trust me. And their recipes are so delicious. They also have other options apart from the wholesome box. So they have a family box for bigger size families an express box. If you're really short on time, uh, as well as a vegan box too. Now, we would love to give you the opportunity for you to actually try Dinner Twist and realize how healthy, how delicious and how fresh it is, but also how much easier this is going to make life as well. So we have a special promo code for you, and that is going to give you $35 off your first box. And that is WWR for Wellness Women Radio. Um, So we would love you to uh, try for yourself. Don't take my word for it, but let me know what you think. Without further ado, ladies, onto the show. Hey there, wonderful listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today on Wellness Women Radio. I'm Ashley. And I'm Andrea. And uh, I am super excited about a really um, deep dive into a super nerdy topic um, that just has totally got all of my um, research juices flowing. (laughs) Um, I know that's such a weird way to put this, but uh, when we dive into this, um, guys, you'll totally understand why I'm saying these things. So I would love to absolutely welcome Naomi to the podcast today. So Naomi Strout is from the University of New South Wales, um, which is obviously my alma mater, um, where I did uh, all of my post-grad studies. Um, So Naomi, welcome. Thanks for joining us on Wellness Women Radio. I'm so excited to be here. So thank you for having me on board. Um, I'll give you a little bit of background about myself. I am a research nurse and a research midwife. I got involved in UNSW Microbiome Research Centre, which is where um, the Mother's Baby Study is currently based. And I joined back in 2018. Um, I've got a huge history in paediatric nursing. So I worked in there for five years before I moved over into midwifery um, and then moved back into clinical research, mainly looking at rare paediatric diseases. And it was from there that I was able to step up and into my role looking at maternal and child health, as well as the impacts our microbiome in the preconception period has on outcomes, not only for mum, but for baby as well. 
Naomi, I mean, that background um, alone is incredible. And um, you obviously reached out to me um, just because I'm obviously a, a University of New South Wales um, alum that's sort of very much um, obsessed with this area. And Ashley and I have been talking a lot about and covering a lot about this idea that, you know, everything that you do in your life is part of your preconception um, care and you know it obviously goes further than that everything your mum did in her life is also going to impact your preconception journey and everything else and not else. just your mother but your grandmother as well which a exactly. lot of people don't realize especially if you look in the context of our grandparents that were post-war and depression era so if you just think about what they were exposed to what they then exposed our parents to and it's now what we're exposed to so huge uh, what do you call it? matrilineal and intergenerational inheritance patterns um and it's so key in the microbiome, which is what we're looking at. And the most exciting thing about microbiome research is it's the one part of your health that you can actually change. It's not directly linked to genetics. It's not linked to anything like that. So, mm. And mm. I don't want to skip over what you just talked about there, that tri-generational impact of, um, you know, the, the impact that it's going to have on your um, obviously preconception time, but also the pregnancy itself. Can can you unpack that a little bit more? Because you're obviously saying things like about post-war exposures and those sorts of things. Um, what's your understanding of how that impacts, um, say, a woman becoming pregnant today? So when we look at the microbiome, there's lots of different um exposures that we can have throughout our lifestyles that will impact on the micro our microbiome development so what the initial seeding event is so the initial exposure that we get as babies but then everything that we're exposed to in terms of um the, uh, our geography so where we grow up whether it's rural remote we live in an urban area um, and if you think about where people grew up you know 70, 80 years ago versus what we're all living in now, um, those are very different geographical areas which definitely can impact on your microbiome structure. But it's also our impact to the food that we eat, so whether or not we're having whole foods or ultra-processed foods. Um, that also is definitely very different on people that have come from like migrating communities, so what they're exposed to in their uh, home countries versus the foods that they're exposed to here in Australia. But then as we start growing up, our different uh, levels of physical activity, um, alcohol, drug use, our sleep, our screen time, and then our sexual partners as well also impact on our microbiome, which then goes on to have an impact on our um, health and well-being, our chances of conceiving, and then what happens to us um, when we're pregnant and what happens to our babies after that. Uh, this, there's so much to unpack. I could sit here and talk for hours about it, but you, you can't have it like Everyone talks about preconception as that 12 months prior to your falling pregnant, but it most definitely isn't just that time frame. We should really be focusing preconception health on teenagers because everything that you do then sets you up for your life patterns that then set you up for what's going to happen to you when you do want to fall pregnant. So for all the women sitting here going, oh, I was planning on having a child, but, uh, you know, no, no pressure. We can't go back to our, our teenage years. Um, I always, we always talk about, you know, what things we can actually do because obviously yeah. there's a lot of things in life that we no longer have control over. We pass those those timelines um, and, of course, we can't reverse engineer our lives. But <laughs> there's so many positive things. Now, with your study, obviously, just um, share a little bit about what the study is because obviously a lot of our listeners um, sit in the same demographics as us. We're in the childbearing years or we have a mother or brother or 
or sister or someone who's, you know, ready for children, they may want to share this information with them. Um, what are you doing and why are you doing it? So this study is actually a follow-on from a really su- successful pilot study we had, which was called the MUM study. Now, the MUM study looked at women from trimester one through to two years post-birth. And that was looking at whether anything during pregnancy impacted on um, adverse pregnancy outcomes and the health of that child. What it and other studies have found is that there are different microbial signatures that could potentially link in with different adverse outcomes. So whether or not that be something like gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, and there's a really interesting study that's come out of China regarding that, um, excessive gestational weight gain, perinatal mood disorders, um, so if those are all there in, say, trimester one before the symptoms start to develop or we need to get treatment for it, are those microbial signatures actually already pre-existing in the preconception phase when we can modify health behaviours, potentially lower that risk of you developing those adverse pregnancy outcomes, which then have the potential to then lower any of that risk that the child might have from being exposed to those outcomes during pregnancy? Um, Women who get gestational diabetes are at a sevenfold increase of developing type 2 diabetes later in life, so it also reduces those outcomes. Um, but women that have preeclampsia, their children are at higher risk of developing cardiometabolic diseases later in life as well. So not only are we creating this newer or hopefully being able to create a newer generation um, of women that have less exposures to adverse pregnancy outcomes, but then their children are at reduced risk of non-communicable. So we look at the health of the woman 12 months prior to falling pregnant or until she falls pregnant, but we give you that 12-month time frame so there's no pressure because no one wants that. Um, And then we sample every three months and we do multi-site microbiome sampling. And the reason for that is your microbiome isn't just your gut which is what a lot of the probiotic companies will try and tell you, that there is microbiomes in your mouth, there's microbiomes in your vagina, you have a skin microbiome, um, and there's emerging discussion around things like a lung microbiome and a placental microbiome, which is a whole other story to unpack. Um, So we do multi-site for this study, and that's so that we can really determine whether or not any of those different communities are um, implicated in any of those adverse outcomes. Um, We sample every three months to see whether there is any changes prior to you falling pregnant, And then once you're pregnant, we have a look at what your microbiome is doing in trimesters one, two, and three. And then we actually do paired sampling on mom and baby to see whether there's any changes that are linked up until that child's second birthday. Um, Once the baby turns two, it doesn't stop there. We then want to follow that baby up until their fifth birthday. The reason for that is this all then falls into that first 2,000 days framework, whereby all of those early life exposures have the potential to impact on their health and well-being in that pivotal first first five years of life. This is an incredible amount of information you guys are creating and gaining. And, so much. Yeah, and obviously, you know, it requires a sample size and we were chatting before the show that you'd started with, a, you know, a modest goal and it's been building and increasing. Um, what sort of target sizes are you looking at? What, uh, so we're hoping to recruit 2,000 women and that's brilliant. nationwide. The best thing about this study is we actually send everything that you need to Um, participate in this study to you we've got an exemption from Australia Post so everything gets back to us through the postal service you don't have to organize a courier you don't even have to turn up to the post office everything fits inside the red postage bins on the street amazing Um, we're already at 550 participants so we're a quarter of the way there Um, and by the end of the year we should actually have 250 babies born as well which is really exciting so we'll be able to have some really good outcomes from that And we're in the process of sequencing the first 100 women um, that fell pregnant and birthed on the study as well. So we should have some interim results out by mid this year. 
Amazing. And for the women that participate, is there any real-time information they can receive? Is there any outcomes? Just, you know, like is it just something that in the future we're going to have a lot more information or along the way do they learn? Yeah. So along the way, once we, because we're an academic institute, we have to batch things and sequence them once we hit certain numbers. And that's just so that we can keep it as cost effective for us as possible. But for all the women that have had their samples sequenced so far, we're in the process of creating microbiome reports for them. The only caveat of that is some of these women have been on the study for two or three years. So some of these results will be um, quite historical, but they can actually then see if there's been any changes. The best part is obviously, regardless of whether we get good results or bad results in terms of what our hypothesis is, we're going to publish everything. And that's just so we can definitively say, yes, the microbiome does have an impact. No, the microbiome doesn't have an impact. Or, you know, women that had preeclampsia had a microbiome signature that looked like this. um, And there could potentially be a biomarker that we can then assess in preconception. Um, It wouldn't be instead of current clinical practice but it would be a nice adjunct therapy to you know determine whether there's anything we can do prior to falling pregnant so it has reduced those risks um Naomi, I'm not sure if this is something that um, maybe you've already talked about, but um, the women who are participating in that preconception time, so the, the 12 months beforehand, and mm-hmm. obviously we know that our infertility statistics in Australia are so alarming at the moment, um, will the women who don't conceive be excluded from the study or is there a way to then use the results for maybe those women in a broader context about possibly the influences that that might have on their fertility potential as well phenomenal question and we actually wrote this into the study very early on because we were noticing that there was women that were unable to conceive or potentially having pregnancy losses on the study that didn't want to leave the study and so what's happened is after 12 months if you're haven't if you haven't fallen pregnant but you're still choosing to fall pregnant um, you're changing from say um, a natural conception you're moving down that fertility pathway we sign you just redo your consent form we sign you up for another 12 month baseline period and you continue on the study with all of those preconception samples um, we actually have two honor students on board for this year one is actually looking at the impacts of infertility on the microbiome and fertility treatments on the microbiome linked to our study. And then the other student is looking at whether our microbiome is impacted in early pregnancy losses. And she's specifically focusing on those losses less than 12 weeks, including chemical pregnancies. Um, The reason for that is there's so much unreported data around a lot of both of those outcomes. Um, And it's such an emotive topic that it would be really interesting to find out whether there is something that we can do from our homes or do within um, a holistic care approach to try and affect those outcomes outside of, you know, having to go down all of the the medical pathways that come with a lot of complications themselves. Um, there's so much that has come out of this study and so many outcomes that we've added along the way that we've gone through ethics to add on because you don't actually begin to understand the breadth of what women go through until you start talking to them. Um, yeah. And there's going to be so many spin-off uh, concepts coming from this that will open gateways to thinking, could this be related to that? You know, like you said, hypothesis after hypothesis will start to become, um, you know, thrown at you and be like, oh, hang on, I hadn't thought about that. That's interesting. Exactly. And I'm sure there's and- listeners sitting here going, oh, but what about, because I'm sitting here going, oh, but what about if there's, you know, the, the effect on the microbiome and um, through the pregnancy 
can I change it? Would that show up? You know, if I'm doing yeah. certain things, like are they going to be able to track and trace that? Like that would be really interesting. And that's what we're hoping will be phase two. So we're using, so at the moment, a lot of microbiome studies just want to go straight down that treatment approach because that's where the funding is, which is really disappointing. So it's all about translational approach, but it's really difficult to turn science into translation if you don't have a baseline for it. So this study is doing the hard yards. And what we're trying to find out is what normal pregnancy signatures look like. Like, what do you want to start your pregnancy at? And then what do potential complications look like preconception and then during pregnancy? So preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, excessive gestational weight gain, and then a big one of mine is perinatal mood disorders because they're so um, poorly looked after as well. Can we sort of go into a little bit of what our understanding is so far about, um, you know, obviously uh, what what influence, say, something like diet and lifestyle has on that microbiome and how that might impact pregnancy? That's actually where I was going to (laughs) go. I read your mind. I know, right? Um, And look, so everyone wants that sort of easy magic pill approach. However, with microbiome at the moment, there's not a lot of solid evidence for magic pills. The most, uh, the strongest evidence on what can affect your microbiome is diet. And that's things like a predominantly plant-based diet. I'm not saying vegan by any standards. I'm just saying increase plants and fiber-rich foods. Um, the current viewpoint from our dietitians that sit within the center is 30 different types of plant-based foods. So whether that be fruits, vegetables, nuts, legumes, et cetera, a week, it's not 30 per day, it's just 30 a week. So it's less than six, or it's six a day, um, as well as eating a good amount of fermented foods and increasing your dietary fiber as well, because that's what feeds all the bugs within our body. Um, Something as little as 30 minutes per day has been demonstrated by other research as well. 30 minutes of physical activity a day is enough to increase that good bacteria in our body as well. And that's definitely recommended for women while they're pregnant, um, obviously reducing any sort of potential inflammatory things that we put into our body. So uh, unfortunately, coffee, um, but then alcohol, any sort of illicit substances you're potentially taking as well. Um, and then our stress levels now. Stress is something that's really difficult to reduce. <laughs> so we've just got to think about our own wellness and what we can do to limit that. Um, but one of the good things is, you know, if you go out for a walk, then that is also benefiting those stress levels as well. And what uh, is the current understanding about how stress actually impacts the microbiome? So there's this emerging gut-brain axis, and that's that um, anything that we're putting into our body as well as the stress that we're putting onto ourselves has this sort of um, – pathway whereby it can uh, change the composition of the different bacteria that's within our body. Um, When you talk about the microbiome and what is constituting a good microbiome, you want a high diversity of bacteria. And what happens when we have dysbiosis or an imbalance is when either the proportion of bacteria changes or that diversity reduces. So in terms of something like our pregnancy microbiome, you want a really high diversity of bacteria um, within our gut and our oral microbiomes because that's what creates those good outcomes. But interestingly, the one microbiome um, that is the opposite of the others is the vaginal microbiome. And we actually want a stable microbiome for that. And that's because that actually is a protective mechanism. So that protects us from um, things like bacterial vaginosis. It protects us from preterm labor and birth. Um, And it also keeps the pH where it needs to be. Interestingly with that as well, your vaginal microbiome is impacted by your ethnicity. So what's normal for women of European ancestry is not normal for women of African or Latin American ancestry. 
Mm. Oh, that's so fascinating. Very interesting. It's fascinating, particularly if you look at um, like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander outcomes in Australia. If you look at their ethnicity 50,000 years ago and involvement in that first wave of migration out of Africa, you do start to wonder if maybe the microbiomes at play there as well. Interesting. Now, I just mm. want to circle back because you mentioned the gut-brain axis and I just, you know, before you said your interest in perinatal mental health or mood yeah. disorders, spin us into that wheel because into I think that. that that's a really interesting one. A lot of our listeners, you know, find it very interesting to realise that sometimes the diagnosis they've received may be impacted by the microbiome. Um, and the reason for that is, well, not even the reason for that, but your prenatal microbiome, that prenatal stress levels can actually impact your microbiome and change your breast milk composition. So it can then go on to directly impact on your baby's neurodevelopmental outcomes as they start to age as well. But it does just change sort of the pro-inflammatory markers within our body, and it does have this sort of interlinked pattern that can I know what I'm trying to say, and I can't think about the way to say it properly. Hang on. <laughs> this is like every mother with children listening oh is my going, God. Uh-huh, this is mum life when you're oh, you know. <laughs> I feel like so for context. I ha- and this is why I'm so passionate about it. I had very severe postnatal depression. Um, I went into my pregnancy thinking that I was the healthiest person in the world. I exercised every single day. I ate really well. I limited it. I didn't limit, but I made sure that I did all of the right things only to go on and develop preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, and then get postnatal depression. The research behind that is that it has to do um, with women having this high cumulative perinatal stress, which then transfers into different abundances of bacterial groups. And for some reason or another, these different bacterial groups actually are pathogenic. Um, It also decreases your levels of lactic acid bacteria, so things like lactobacillus, which is good bacteria. Um, But what has been interesting as well is that there is this intergenerational role where it does change the composition of your baby's microbiota and they do think that there might be some link in with this in terms of the bonding so if you've got some form of perinatal mood disorder whether it be anxiety or depression or psychosis you're separated from your child um, you can't breastfeed you're not as comfortable cuddling or kissing or you don't have the capacity to do that because you're so um, just torn about your diagnosis more than anything that this actually disrupts that microbiota transfer as well um which we haven't, we haven't touched it yet but birth um birth modality as well the birth method does influence that too doesn't it it does and interestingly with that though a lot of the research that's coming out about birth mode only looks at elective cesarean sections versus normal vaginal births so the good thing about our study and the gut that we're trying to look at is women who have had to have an emergency cesarean but have actually gone through those labour um, or the length of labour, whether or not they've had their waters broken, um, how long they've laboured for, the reason for the emergency cesarean section, does that actually change that child's microbiome as well? Mm-hmm. Um, you would expect that it would be different because they are having to go through the stress of labour um, hormonal influences all the hormonal influences but also you know upward transfer of microbes because they have had um uh all of the the (laughs) process the birthing process um and depending on you know how dilated the woman's got how far they've descended all of those that can impact on um just that mode of birth we don't focus too much on that as a primary outcome 
And the reason for that is there is a massive study happening in Canada called the Child Study, and they're really focused on child outcomes, so breastfeeding, birth mode. Um, and then there's a different study in America that's looking at women who vaginally seed for cesarean sections as well and whether that has an impact mm-hmm. on those babies' microbiome compositions. Um, and just for our listeners who don't understand vaginal seeding, because that, that might be a new concept in our world, it's normal, <laughs> but, but for a lot of people are like, uh, say what? Yeah. Um, Vaginal seeding is an elective process. So it's something women choose to do if they're having an elective cesarean section, although I have heard stories of women who have had emergencies also doing it on the ward, um, whereby you insert sterile gauze into the lower part of your vagina. The sterile gauze has been soaked in saline or a water, sterile water solution. It then sits inside your vagina for up to an hour so that the microbes can then transfer onto that sterile gauze. It is then removed and the baby is then swabbed from top to bottom, so top of their face, all through, and their mouth, down the front to their feet, the baby is then flipped over and it goes over their back as well. And that is to replicate um, a vaginal birth when you can't have one because you've had a cesarean section. At the moment, it is very much a research concept. It is not endorsed by any practitioner in Australia. Um, If you have made the risk assessment to do so yourself, you're very welcome to have discussions with your care provider, whether that be your midwife um, or your obstetrician. I have heard of some that will definitely discuss it with women. If they wish to go ahead, you just sign a waiver saying that you know what the process is and what you're planning to do it. Um, The study coming out of the States has shown that there's been no adverse outcomes to vaginal seeding, which is very exciting. Um, But they've been small sample sizes. It was 76 babies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's a starting point, start. isn't it? And they're uh, hoping to get to 500 babies. So yeah. I actually know that researcher. So she's doing quite good work in that area. Um, what was the name of that study, Naomi, the American one? The the vaginal seeding one? Yeah. Uh, ooh, I can So Maria Gloria de Winigues Bello is the name of the researcher. Sorry, I'm just Googling it now. Yeah, no, that's okay. Um, yeah, um, I know, like I said, the researcher is based at We'll share some links, I think, is probably the best way to do this because yeah. I know that there's yeah. a lot of our audience do love to to learn more and to know more and I think we're opening up some areas that, you know, often aren't discussed. They We've mentioned them, I think, in passing, but uh, you've explained that in a way that we definitely haven't explained before. So we're definitely getting, co- you know, contact and connection with mothers who are more interested in this because they've been reading things and if I, you know, don't have a vaginal birth, my baby's going to miss out on all these things. And it's yeah. like, well, actually, there's possibilities that yeah. may not be the case. We, we don't know enough about it yet and you've just explained that there's research ongoing to to understand this better. And some of the reassuring um, data coming out of the group in Canada that's looking at breastfeeding outcomes is that by six months of age, babies that are breastfed, their microbiome shifts towards those vaginally delivered babies. And by sort of that one to three year mark, when their microbiome starts to stabilize toward an adult microbiome, the changes in birth mode are quite negligible, so less than 1%. Um, So breastfeeding has a very good restorative power. However, I'm more than aware that there is that cohort of women that can't breastfeed as well. They're also looking at express breast milk, donor milk, things like that. Yeah. And again, no pressure. You know, you've only got three years until you set your adult microbiome. (laughs) Exactly. I I can imagine when we're having kids and my husband and I are like, oh my gosh, like we've got this window and if we want to make these perfect children, like no pressure. And I I was all over him being like, it takes two to tango, whatever I do, you've got to do too. You know, like I'm no alcohol, you're no alcohol. He's just like, oh my God, what are we doing? I'm like, we are creating a healthy human being. We are attempting to do the best we can. He just thought I was neurotic, but I'm like, no, I'm serious about this. So I'm throwing him all this research and he's like, okay, okay, I get it. We'll just like live clean, eat well, like try and reduce our stress. I'm like, that's it. That's it. Right. 
about that. <laughs> but it's also one of those things if you get so hung up on all of the things that you've got to do, then that can yeah. increase your stress levels as well. Which and then, decreases like, fertility. <laughs> yeah. And it's like for the first year of my daughter's life, we were so like no sugar, no processed foods. I made all of my own baby food. Amazing. She only eats peanut butter sandwiches and chicken nugget <laughs> chips now. <laughs> Every now and then I get some grapes into her and I was just like, what are you doing? Uh, yes this is is amazing this this is Um, the world we live in okay so Naomi I have a really important question that I'm sure everyone listening is going to be wondering is what do we know about the influences of antibiotic exposure to these outcomes so far Um, because obviously there is um, you know in in my opinion a huge amount of controversy around group strep B and the swabbing of that and the antibiotic exposure that is recommended um, you know if a woman is group strep positive Um, so maybe that's a separate question but can we just cover what's our understanding of you know antibiotic exposure you know during preconceptional pregnancy at the moment so antibiotics as we all know, don't just target the bad bacteria that we're trying to knock out. They target that good bacteria as well. And there is a lot of evidence showing that, you know, 75% of women who get antibiotics for GBS and labor don't actually need them. Mm. Um, again, that's a rabbit warren I could go down in terms of the way we universally screen everyone at 36 weeks for a transient bacteria that may not be there four weeks later. Um, mm. <laughs> Which I think is why now the actual um, screening of it is not compulsory anymore. Um, No, and there is some hospitals have started to introduce what they do in the UK where you can do uh, GBS PCR on admission to the labour ward. Um, I have heard of a hospital in Sydney doing that. Um, I'm not sure what's happening over in Perth. Uh, but there is different ways for screening for GBS now. We just need to try and uh, push that more into that public sector. Um, However, I'm well aware that, you know, women that haven't recorded need like haven't got antibiotics for GBS have ended up with quite unwell children because they tested negative and then they got febrile and labor and it turned out to be that particular bacteria um in terms of you know antibiotic exposures it does it decreases that over like I said that overall diversity and that's mainly around the fact that it does kill off all the bacteria in our body um it definitely affects the bacteria of the baby as well but interestingly it is also linked with chronic disease later in life. So I saw a really interesting image a few years ago where they overlaid obesity patterns in America with children that were exposed to antibiotics and maps were very similar. Um, it's also been linked to increase, um, risks, uh, increased rates of allergic disease in children, but then mental health disorders later in life. Um, if you look at women that get antibiotics earlier on in pregnancy as well, it also increases their risk of gestational weight gain or excessive gestational weight gain in the pregnancy. So there is really good need for antibiotics, but we also need to look at ways that we can mitigate the risks that are associated with that as well. And whether or not that's changes to diet, whether there is something we can give the women, um, it just needs to be investigated further. And phase two of our study is going to be looking at that. So once we know what things look like in this study, we can then do that intervention and translational approach that everyone wants. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, that's certainly so consistent with what our take on that is as well. Um, Naomi, how can women um, participate in this? Because I know part of the purpose of this podcast is actually to spread the message about, you know, the mothers and babies study that you're actually doing to help your recruitment pool, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, So how can they participate? So you can participate by going to unsw.to forward slash mothersbabies. That's all one word. 
that will take you to a screening survey. And within that screening survey, it asks you five questions, which is our inclusion criteria. And that's just that you're over 18 years of age, that you're planning to fall pregnant, but not currently pregnant. The reason for that is the preconception data for this study is the key gap we're trying to identify, um, that you're happy to participate for the seven years that the preconception period pregnancy and five-year follow-up is, that you're based in Australia for that entire time. And we also ask an optional question around partner microbiome sampling as well. And that's we actually ask if your partners are interested or if you, um, then they can supply a one-off preconception sample as well. It's not just male partners. So women in same-sex relationships, their partners can um, provide microbiome samples as well. And what's been really exciting is some of those preconception partner samples on the same-sex couples we've had have then turned into baseline samples because those women have stayed on for baby number two. Oh, uh, so we get a really good longitudinal look at their microbiome because no, partner one has had first baby, then partner two stayed on for second baby. We also have really interesting data on um, single mums by choice as well that go through fertility, and we have quite a lot of those on the study as well. Oh, that's fascinating. And don't worry, I will absolutely post the link in the show notes um, that you can see below if you want to find out more about this and um, potentially think about uh, participating in this. Brilliant. Oh, and yeah. thank you so much for just sharing, uh, you know, a reminder about the things that we can actually do. I think, you know, for a lot of the times we get hung up on what we can't do or what we haven't done, but, you know, mentioning those basics like the lifestyle strategies, even the 30 minutes of exercise a day, we still like every now and then, Andrew, we're talking about something we laugh about the study that, you know, the, the sweaty rugby players and the rugby players microbiome diversity. And we're like, you don't have to sweat on a football field. You can just go for a jog in nature and it makes a huge difference. You know, it's, uh, there's so many ways in which we can positively influence our microbiome microbial diversity and I love yeah. that you explained that in such a good way to understand that it's not about you know good versus bad it's about the diversity you know the the abundance of uh, variety in the body and to do that you need to be out in nature you've exactly. got to be getting your hands dirty and that it's so individual for everyone else as well which is why mm. there's no one size fits all approach to this you have to know what's good for you what's going to suit you and your body and your lifestyle and definitely what works for yourself and what works for, like, say, my supervisor are two very, very different like, ends of the spectrum. Um, but, like, simple things that I instigated when I was pregnant was I had to exercise because of my GDM. So I now park 20 minutes away from work. And oh, it may, very good. It's great because yeah. if you've been sitting down all day in the office and you leave and you're flustered and you're in a flat because you're like, oh, I've got all of these things that I need to do, by the time you get back to the car, not only have you done quite a good power walk to get there, but you've also been able to unpack all of the stress and you, you checked off your mental list. You know what you're doing. And so when you get in the car, you're nice, you're calm, you get home. And you're, you're a much mindset. nicer driver. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm in Sydney, so it's not great. And there are, I do call my husband a lot of the time and he's like, you just need to breathe. But it allows you to get through a lot of that and to work through some of the things you may not have had a chance to address while you've been sitting at the desk. Love um, it. Great, yeah. great, great tip there. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. And this study is incredible. I mean, personally, I'm so excited to see what comes from this in, you know, two, five, ten years from now, because this is obviously going to be going on for quite some time. Uh, we'll do our best to yell and shout and promote this because I think the information that can be, you know, gained from this is phenomenal and far reaching. And 
you know, as we said, intergenerational benefits could be attained from this. So, ladies, if you're wondering whether or not you should get involved, I'm going to say highly recommend it. I wished I'd known about this. I said before we started recording, like, how did I not know about this? Like, this is our jam. This is our space. This is like, you know, I want to know for myself. I'm a bit jealous. I might have to have another child just to be able to Well, I was going to say, hey, Ash, baby number three. Exactly. <laughs> like, I don't think Peter wants to hear that. But anyway, um, <laughs> but, you know, the amazing thing is you're doing great work. So thank you so much. And uh, we appreciate you sharing your time with us today. This has been really interesting. I love love this topic. No, thank you so much. It's been great chatting with you guys. Like, I could sit here and talk about this for hours. Oh, yes, us too, absolutely. Too. <laughs> oh, Naomi Strout from the University of New South Wales, who is part of the Mother and ba- Mothers and Babies Study. Thank you so much. Um, guys, you've been listening to Wellness Women Radio. We are the Wellness Women, Dr. Ashley Bond and Dr. Andrea Huddleston. We are raising the bar for women's health. And until next week, be well. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.